Homecoming is great, even the kind that uh, happens at the University of Guelph or at the University of Laurier. Uh, it's pretty exciting. If you've been hearing on the news, um, the city of Kitchener-Waterloo is getting ready for Laurier's homecoming, which is coming up this week, which is always a fairly wild time. Uh, Guelph's homecoming is this weekend as well. Uh, it's going to be an incredible football game as they play the Ottawa GGs. If you are there, I will wave at you, and you will notice me hooting and hollering at the top of my lungs. Homecoming is pretty fun. Why is it fun? Because uh, there's tons of people there, and everyone is excited and causing a ruckus, and there's music at halftime, and there's pizza in the parking lot, and really what else do you need? Uh, we were at the football game yesterday, and I had this moment, I was thinking of course about this sermon, and I was thinking about crowds and why as human beings we tend to really like crowds. And one of the reasons I think we really like crowds is because it's a tangible reminder that we're not alone. And we spend a lot of our time feeling alone, and so when we get into a crowd, it's even without recognizing it, it's kind of a subconscious reminder that we are not by ourselves. Um, you can of course take it a step too far. If you fly transatlantic, you know exactly what I'm talking about. After 13 and a half hours to Israel, you want some alone time. But when you come home from Israel, that homecoming is great. Homecoming is exciting. We had Spirit Day at uh, Centennial this past Friday, and we played Bishop Mack, and uh, it was quite a trouncing. Uh, the good guys won, fortunately, which is nice. If you know anything about competitive sports, you know that you often lose more than you win, so you celebrate every win, and that's exactly like your life and mine. Make sure that you celebrate every win because they don't come along all that often. But we had our own mini homecoming on Friday at Centennial to let the whole school out before school was up, and they packed the bleachers, and there was probably, I don't know, 1,500 people there hooting and hollering and cheering and excited because they were at their home school. Homecoming is fun. When you come home from a long trip, it's exciting. Maybe when you go to your cottage, it feels like going home, even though you've technically gone away. It feels like a home away from home. Maybe you have a favorite vacation spot that you've gone to throughout your life, and every time you go back there, it's like a home away from home. Nikki and I went to a place this summer for the very first time and met a couple there who have been going to this same place for 34 years. Can you imagine? 34 years straight, they've been going to the same place every summer, and uh, Nikki and I just had a wonderful time and uh, made some friends. But wow, for them, this place that is away from home felt like home. Maybe your favorite chair can feel like home. My uh, old Bible from grade 10, which I read from for this morning's invocation, feels like home to me. Coming home is nice. And so we ought to be asking ourselves the question in light of this, well then how can I get home? If home is such a nice place, how do I get there? The answer to that question is this. You start small, but you start. That's how you get home. You start small, but you start. Now here is uh, Ezra chapter 2, read from the English Standard Version. And if I had $100 for every person who had heckled me this week over the fact that I get to read so many names, our offering would have been quite a bit bigger today. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Serayar, Eliyah, Mordechai, Blishan, Mispar, Bigvai, Rechum, and Bana. I grew up in Israel, so I'm going to read these names in Hebrew, just in case you're thinking, man, he spent 20 hours learning these names in Hebrew. I'm from there, so I figure we'll read them as if we're from there. The number of the men of the people of Israel. So here we get into the numbers and all the names. And uh, you're going to have quite a fun moment in about 10 minutes when I come back to some of these names in a way that hopefully you'll find surprising. So uh, try and pay attention, even though it's a lot of names. 
The sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Sheftiah, 372. The sons of Arah, 775. The sons of Pachat Moab, namely the sons of Yeshua and Yoav, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Bebai, 623. The sons of Azgad, 1,222. The sons of Donikam, 666. Those are probably bad guys right there. The sons of uh, Bigvai, 2056. The son of Adin, 454. The sons of Atev, namely of Chizkiyahu, 98. The sons of Bezai, 323. The sons of Yorah, 112. The sons of Hashum, 223. The sons of Givar, 95. The sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netophah, 56. The men of Anatot, 128. The sons of Azmavet, 42. The sons of Kiryat Arim, Cherifa, and Be'erot, 743. The sons of Ramah and Geva, 621. The men of Michmash, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The sons of Nevo, 52. The sons of Magvish, 156. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Lod, Hadad, and Ono, 725. The sons of Yericho, 345. The sons of Sena, 3,630. This was the most virile of the uh, Babylonian Israelites. The priests, the son of Yedida, of the house of Yeshua, 973. The sons of Imer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. Let me just pause there. Um, a bula, which is a seal impression. So in uh, ancient Israel, when they would want to seal a scroll, they didn't use wax. They used a little ball of uh, clay. They put that wet ball on a bunch of strings of grass that would wrap up the scroll. And then the, whoever was sealing it would take a seal and would press that seal down on the clay. And that would create what's called a bula. And then that seal, would, that seal impression would dry and that would seal up the document. When it was time to read the document, you would break the seal and open the scroll. So typically most of the bula we find in archaeology in Israel are broken, right? Because someone broke it and opened the scroll and read it. Interestingly, we talked last week about the fact that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, sacked the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And there's actually a uniform ash layer <laughs> that covers all of ancient Jerusalem that carbon dates to 586 B.C., which is pretty cool. But uh, about 30 years ago, 25 years ago, I think, they found an archive in the remains of the ancient city of Jerusalem. There's an archive, of course, is where all the scrolls were kept. And this archive is about 60 feet south of the royal complex in the city of Jerusalem. We don't say it's where the palace was, but... Most archaeologists think that's where the palace of David and Solomon was. So this archive was quite close to that uh, complex. And in this archive, they found several bula that were whole because when Nebuchadnezzar burnt the city, of course, what happens to a scroll when you burn it? It disintegrates. What happens to clay when you burn it? Does it disintegrate? No, it remains. And so they found whole bula in an ash layer dating to 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar sacked the city. And wouldn't you know it, but on that bula is the name of the sons of Imer and the sons of Pashur, both of whom appear here in the genealogy when the Jews returned home 70 years later. So a little trivia, just in case you uh, find yourself in first-year philosophy with an idiot who thinks Christianity is a fable, you can uh, say, maybe not. The Levites, the son of Yeshua and Kadmiel, and the sons of Hodaviah, 74, the singers, the sons of Asaph, 128, the sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, 
The sons of Ater, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akuv, the sons of Chatiyah, the sons of Shovai, in all 139. The temple servants, the sons of Zichah, the sons of Chashufa, the sons of Tavaot, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siyah, the sons of Padon, the sons of Levanah, the sons of Hagavah, the sons of Akub. Are you going to sleep yet? There'll be a reason later why I read all these names. Pay attention. The sons of Hagav, the sons of Shamlai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gachar, and the sons of Re'ayah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nekodah, and the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Menunim, the sons of Nefishim. Nefishim means souls, by the way. The sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Bazluth, the sons of Mehida, the sons of Harsha. Lord have mercy. The sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Temah, the sons of Neziah, and the sons of Hatifa, which means a uh, good-looking woman in uh, modern Hebrew. Probably didn't mean that back then. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasorephet, the sons of Perudah, the sons of Ja'ala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Sheftiah, the sons of Chatil, the sons of Po, Cheret, Chazevaim, and the sons of Ami. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came out from Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adan, and Imer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel's. The sons of Delilah, the sons of Toviah, the sons of Nekodah, 652. Also, of the sons of the priests, the sons of Chaviah, the sons of Chakoz, and the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and was called by their name, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult the Urim and the Tumim. This is so weird. I'll talk about it briefly, maybe, unless I forget. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736. They're counting their animals. Their mules were 245. Their camels, 435. And their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. And all God's people said, Oh, finally. <laughs> That was much worse to read out loud than it was to work with quietly in my own mind. Ezra 2 is not about the names. Okay? It's not about the names. Ezra 2 is about the fact that all those names were going home. Okay? That's what Ezra 2 is about. All those names were going home. They got to go home. So will you. So start your journey. I can stop the sermon right there. That's the whole point. That is the whole point. The people of Israel got to go home from captivity in Babylon. So will you. So start your journey. There are six big ideas to keep in mind as you start, or for some of you, continue your journey home. Isn't it nice to have only six points after last week's 25-point sermon? Lord have mercy. I told you, I just preach what's there. And this week, in addition to those wonderful names, there are six big ideas to keep in mind as you start, or for some of you, continue your journey home. Before we start, what is home for us as God's people? Wherever God is. Okay, that's home for us. Wherever God is. That's why anywhere can be home for one of God's people. Pretty cool concept. Which means from a, a Jesus-following perspective, you don't ever really need to worry about exile. Because even in the valley of the shadow of death, 
God is with you. Home is wherever God is. Here's the first big idea to keep in mind as you journey home. You were the captive, now you are the redeemed, so live like it. We see this in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, now these were the people, after he issues that edict, now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried off to Babylonia. These were the people who came up out of captivity. Very specific people. That's why I read you every single name. I want you to notice that specifically, these 42,000 people came home. They very specifically came home. They were very specifically redeemed. This is true for us today. We may not be captives in Babylon, but in Jesus, you have been very specifically redeemed. You have been very specifically set free in Jesus. I told you that the book of Romans would be making a cameo appearance today. Here it is. I'm reading from Romans chapter 6. Two sections. Verses 6 through 7, and then verses 17 and 18. We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I want to ask you this morning if you know or really remember on an ongoing basis that sin enslaves. That's what it does. Sin enslaves. And this is a very different point of view from that of most of the people you know in the big wide world. Most of the people around you think that sin equals freedom or at least freedom means the ability to sin. If I'm free, I should be free to do whatever I wants. Many of the people you know in the real world would consider sinning part of what it means to be free, to express yourself, to do whatever makes you happy, to do whatever comes to mind, to do whatever gratifies your desires from moment to moment. And this is an idea, of course, that is popular in the world because the world is given over to the prince of this world, the devil, and we know that the devil is a liar. So it's not surprising to me that the common perspective in the wide world is that if you're really free, you can sin as much as you want. In fact, it's gone even more insidious than that. Many of your peers wouldn't even believe in the concept of sin because like, God doesn't exist. Just do whatever you want. This, of course, is all fine and good until someone sins against them. The second someone sins against somebody who doesn't believe in sin, all of a sudden they believe in sin again. It's totally true. I don't want to give you horrible examples, but those are the ones that are coming to mind even as I'm speaking to you. So you think of some horrible examples of someone sinning against someone else who doesn't believe in sin, and you can see that I'm absolutely right here. Here's the point. What sin actually does is destroy and enslave. Let's, um, let's use a slightly less caustic example than the ones ringing through my mind right now. I like to have a glass of wine, especially if my wife is there. One glass of wine is fine. Two glasses of wine is fine. Three glasses of wine is fine-ish. Because by this point now you're intoxicated. Intoxication is actually biblically allowed-ish. Why? Because wine makes glad the heart of man. Okay? So, ish. Four glasses of wine, now it's a problem. Five glasses of wine, now it's really a problem. Why? Now because it's drunkenness. When does drunkenness become a problem? When it is drunkenness. Okay, I've been drunk once in my life. It took me until the age of 36 to get there. So at 36 was the first time I ever got drunk. 
and it was not fun. I haven't touched hard liquor since. Seriously, it's a bad situation, okay? No fun, not a cool thing. But it was not drunkenness. What is drunkenness? Drunkenness is drunkenness as a way of being, as a way of life, as a habitual practice. What does drunkenness or can drunkenness lead to? Well, it can lead to all manner of sin. It can lead to fathers neglecting their wives, sometimes abusing them. It can lead to parents neglecting their children, sometimes abusing them. It can lead to the fracture of, I mean, so many societal systems that it would take me too much time to go over them. Drunkenness is a sin. What can it lead to? It can lead to alcoholism. What does alcoholism do? It absolutely destroys lives. So we start with something good that God made good and called good, wine. Right? Even in the communion liturgy, we bless the fact that God himself is the one who made the fruit of the vine. So he made all things good, including grapes, including wine. But too much wine can lead to drunkenness, which is a sin. And sin leads to death and destruction. And left to run unrestrained, unrepentant sin leads to eternal separation from God, also known as hell. So if you are struggling with the idea that sin might not necessarily be a good thing, find somebody who has dealt with the wreckage of sin in their life and ask them for their opinion. Ask them if the sin that entangled them has been a good thing or a bad thing. And I think the answer you will get is absolutely in line with what our text is saying today. Sin destroys and enslaves, and in Jesus, you who once were captive have been set free. So the idea from this is to live free. Wouldn't it be silly to be made free and then to live like a captive? This would be kind of silly. So how do I live free? You live free by heading home as if Jesus is at your side because he is. Let's pick it up at verse 1, part B, and we'll go right through verse 2, part A. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Sarayah, Aliyah, Mordechai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvai, Rechum, and Bana. The point is, they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel and Yeshua. I want to uh, take some liberty here with interpreting these two names. They came home with Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the prince of Judah. Okay, he is referred to in chapter 1 as uh, Sheshbazar. So Sheshbazar was his Babylonian name, but his Jewish name was Zerubbabel. And you know what Zerubbabel means? It's a great name. It means throw down Babylon. So if Zerubbabel, the prince of Judah, was given that name, who was he given that name by his parents. And if he was the prince of Judah, in what lineage were his parents? What lineage would they have been in if he was the prince of Judah? They would have been in whose lineage? King David's lineage. They would have been part of the lineage of the kings of Judah in captivity in Babylon. They have a firstborn son, and they stick it to the man. They say, you know what we're going to call him? Not David, not Hezekiah, not Shlomo, Solomon, we're going to call him Throw Down Babylon. Zerubbabel. This is a name that reeks with hope. This is a name dripping in faith. Zerubbabel. 
Throw down Babylon. And look, I am too much of a Christian preacher to see the name of my Jesus in the text right next to the name Zerubbabel and to not think that it might be a prophetic wink from God himself. The first two names that show up, they went home with throw down Babylon and Yeshua, Jesus. If that's not a godly wink, I don't know what is. Yes, please. Throw down Babylon with Jesus at his side. Sign me up. Okay, here's the point. You have the best traveling companion ever. Right? Imagine being Zerubbabel and having a man named Jesus at your side. You wouldn't have known because Jesus isn't going to come for a while yet. But looking back with the benefit of Christian hindsight, we can go, Ooh, that's a sign of things to come if ever I saw one. Why? How do I know? Well, because I've read Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, hear me, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, Jesus is not just at your side. He's inside. That's how close Jesus is to you. If you're heading home, keep that in mind. Think that would help this week? Knowing that unlike Zerubbabel, Jesus is not at your side. He's actually on the inside. Point number two of six. You've got Jesus by your side, so live like it and throw down Babylon. I've read the book of Revelation. Maybe you have too. What's one of the things that our Jesus does in his great and final victory? He throws down Babylon. The symbol of all things evil, all things twisted, and all things wrong. Also, point number three, remember that everybody is invited. Here we come to the names. I read every one of those names because every one of those names is a person. And every name had a story. And every person with every one of their stories matters. So here are the translations of some of their names. For those of you who are expecting, maybe take these under consideration. If uh, throw down Babylon and Jesus and God is mercy and the builder, that's Bana, and God is my father, that's Aviyah, and God of my nation and God is arising and my God is strong, that's Chizkiyahu, and if court of the mountains, I like that name, and if the wells and if the sons of Pashchur matter to God, then friend, you matter to God. Could you say amen, even just in your heart? That's why we have all these names, because each one of them mattered. And if they mattered, you mattered. And if you matter, then everybody matters. Everybody matters. You and everybody else. How do I know? Because these names are not just names. These names represent a distribution of different societal classes. Did you know that? We have everyday people listed between verses 3 and 36. So if you're an everyday person, you too are invited home. We have the priestly elite listed in verses 36 through 39. So if you are part of the societal elite, and sometimes you feel a little guilt over that because of your high achiever status, and people look down on you paradoxically because of the successes you've had in life. And so you feel a little awkward about it. Don't feel awkward about it because you too, members of the elite, are invited home. Maybe you're a 
middle class kind of person or maybe a slightly upper middle class kind of person. Many of us here in the city of Guelph would be slightly upper middle class kind of people. You too are invited home because in verses 40 and 42, we have the Levitical upper middle class listed. And amongst the Levitical upper middle class, there is also distribution of jobs. We have priestly assistants, we have singers, we have soldiers, and we have gatekeepers. And maybe you're part of the working class. If you're part of the working class, you too are invited because the servants were listed in verses 43 through 54. And maybe you're in politics. If you're in politics, you too are invited home. It behooves us to remember this political season that even our politicians are invited home. And we ought to treat them as such, not as unclean outsiders, because the political class, the courtiers, are invited home in verses 55 through 58. And even, this is my favorite part, the dispossessed, those who could not prove their lineage listed in verses 59 through 63 were invited home to start again they said come on home and once we have a priest working in the temple who can consult the urim and the tumim we'll ask him you're like what's the urim and the tumim very weird i'm almost out of time this was part of the breastplate that the high priest wore which they would use for the casting of lots some interpreters think that when you ask god for a sign one of the stones would glow And it either meant good or bad, yes or no. Others think that they were stones actually inside a little pouch that the priest would then take out and cast the lots. Okay? So this is what the Urim and the Tumim were. They were established when God first commanded the building of the tabernacle, and they continued in priestly service until the destruction of the first temple under Nebuchadnezzar in 586. And so we never know if they actually found the Urim and the Tumim again because they don't appear after this instance in the Scriptures. But I want you to notice the faith that is in in action here. They're saying, look, even if you can't prove your lineage, still come home. And once things are reestablished and the high priest is in authority again, we will let him decide. Why does this resonate beautifully for Christians? Because our great high priest is not a Jewish man named Eli, who happens to be wearing some lots inside his robe. Who is our high priest? Our great high priest is Jesus, and one day he will decide so invite everybody and remember point number four it's okay to start small we see this in verse 64 and the whole assembly was what Forty-two thousand three hundred and sixty people i want to point out this is a very far cry from the six hundred thousand ish who left egypt and the 2.5 million ish or so who settled the promised land originally and i want to use this to say this remember as you go home if it seems difficult you serve a god who likes to defy the odds how do i know well because he likes to use old husbands with barren wives to build his nation he likes to use slaves with stuttering leaders to defy empires he likes to use nothing but trumpets and shouts to collapse a city wall he likes to use 300 hooligans to rout an army he liked to use a woman with a tent peg to win a war and he liked one cloud in the sky to end a drought and friends he chose one man on a tree to conquer death this is what jesus did the one man on the tree suffering and dying in your place for your sin And actually dying the death that you should have died with the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulders. But because he was not just a man, because he was God the Son made flesh, he arose the third day, defeating the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. He is the ultimate defier of the odds. Because let's be honest, what are the odds that a dead man rises? 
Let me say to you, redemption may start small. Remember the mustard seed. Remember Yael and her tent peg. Remember Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah. Remember the people of Israel and stuttering Moses. Remember the trumpets and shouts around Jericho. Remember Gideon and his 300. Remember Eliyahu the prophet who saw the one cloud in the sky and started to run because he knew a storm was coming. Redemption may start small, but you are in for a very big finish. So don't despise small beginnings and point number five. Do everything you can. Notice in verses 68 through 69 what they do when they get home. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site according to their ability. They did everything they could. They gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments on top of their tithes. All Jews tithed. It started at 10% and grew to 23% or so, depending on the year. On top of their tithes, in this instance, they gave offerings. And what was 60,000 derricks equivalent to? It would have been $33,184. And I have no idea what that would be adjusted to today's rates of inflation. And what would 5,000 minas of silver have been? $2,181 and $250 in today's money plus some priestly garments, which for us is pretty cheap. Black jeans, black shirt, black shoes, although my socks are kind of fancy. (laughs) What's the point? They did everything they could. Where are you at? How close are you to doing everything you could? What would um, motivate you to do everything you could? Knowing you were going home. And this is what happens as we close in verse 70. And worship team, you can join me on stage. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived where? In their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Do not miss the fact that these exiled Jews were going home not to some random place, but to the very towns in which their ancestral lineage had lived. They were going home. In fact, to the home of homes. And that is why they did everything. So as you do the same, as you go home, remember one, you were the captive, now you're the redeemed. Two, you've got Jesus by your side, so live like it and throw down Babylon. Remembering three, that everyone is invited, including you and everyone you know. And four, it's okay to start small. And you know, five, just do everything you can. And six, start acting like you're on your way home, because uh, last time I checked, going home is pretty great. <laughs>